Welcome back to Until It's Fixed, where we take an inside look at pressing topics in the healthcare industry, new approaches to care, and how to make the health system work better for everyone. I'm Kelly Chamberlain. My co-host Stacey Dove is out today, but you'll hear from her later in this episode. We are going to be talking about health literacy. This is especially important to me as a birth doula because one of the key components of my role is making sure that when I'm supporting a birthing person, that they have all the information that they need to make informed decisions about their health care. For example, if I'm working with somebody who's in the process of labor and delivery, they might be presented with the option to have an epidural. In that example, my role would be to make sure that the person I'm working with fully understands what that means, what the impact of that decision is, what alternatives it might be, and, you know, making sure that anything else within the context of that situation is clear so that they are able to make the best decision for themselves about what they want for themselves and their child. This is important this work of health literacy, because at best, estimates say that only one out of 10 adults are fully able to understand their care. Within a population, what does that look like and what does that mean? We know within the Medicare population that improving health literacy could prevent nearly 1 million hospital visits and save over $25 billion a year. So as an industry, we have a responsibility to make our information easy to find, understand, and use. I spoke with Lambert Vanderwalde, who has led research in this area, about ways to do that effectively. He is the Senior Vice President and Executive Director of the Center for Healthcare Research at United Health Group. He has more than 20 years of experience in finance and public policy, and his group wrote the United Health Group Health Literacy Research Brief. Let's listen in. Thank you, Lambert, for being here. I'm really excited to have you on. Tell me about yourself, tell me about your role. And tell me about why you do the work that you do. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. My background is finance, and I came from finance to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. I've been here at United Health Group since 2015 and uh, led the research team here. Our research efforts examine the problems with our healthcare system, of which there are many. And we endeavor to highlight best practices and solutions, or at the very least, to educate our audience about challenges in healthcare. That's great. Tell me more about what got you interested in this topic of health literacy. Yeah, it's a really good question. If you think about our efforts to make the healthcare system work better for everyone, we can improve access to affordable care, but better outcomes just won't occur if members' experience is confusing. How can a patient give informed consent to treatment if he or she doesn't understand the information to begin with? So this research, I believe, is important as as a call to action for organizations and healthcare professionals. We wanted to show just how much healthcare outcomes could improve and how much spending could be reduced with higher health literacy at the population level. Interesting. Um, Before we go any further, can you define health literacy for us? Absolutely. So health literacy has been traditionally defined as the ability of individuals to access, understand, and use information to promote and maintain good health. A person with limited health literacy may encounter challenges interpreting basic health information, for example, on drug labels, such as determining the times of day to take the drug or identifying substances that could cause a negative interaction. On the other hand, a person with higher health literacy would be able to read and apply that drug label information 
and interpret more complex uh, formats and terminology. For example, a person with high health literacy would be able to look at a chart to find the age range for appropriate childhood vaccines. And what is the difference between personal and organizational health literacy? The traditional definition focused on individuals with limited health literacy. However, with the possible exception of school-aged children, it's really not practical to address low health literacy at just the individual level. Because of the challenge that this presents, the definition really needs to be expanded. And so, in fact, HHS recently created a new organizational definition of health literacy, which is the degree to which organizations equitably enable individuals to find, understand, and use information and services to inform health-related decisions and actions. This acknowledges the system-level opportunity to ensure that health information is conveyed in a way that can be accessed, understood, and effectively used. So now we can all recognize that the responsibility for health literacy extends beyond the individual to the organizations and professionals who create and deliver health information and services. Got it. That's really helpful. And so I know that you lead a team of researchers around health literacy. Tell me a little bit about that work. A couple of years ago, we realized that there was a real gap between patient understanding of instructions of physician orders and actual adherence. Um, There's a lot of questions, especially around pharmaceuticals. Are people taking their medicines? And you can look at the rate of prescribing, the rate of fills of those prescriptions at the pharmacy, it drops. And then the actual consumption of those drugs drops even further. And so if individuals are, are failing to understand what they need to do in order to seek their treatment or achieve their treatment, I should say, um, it, it's obviously a problem. Our research on health literacy shows that people who live in communities with lower health literacy levels are at greater risk for poor health outcomes and high costs. Seniors who need and use health care the most have the lowest health literacy of any age group. And there are huge disparities across the country. In the best performing counties, only about a quarter of the population has limited health literacy. However, in the lowest performing counties, as much as 60% of the Medicare population has limited health literacy. This research shows that improving health literacy could prevent nearly 1 million hospital visits and save over $25 billion a year. Wow. How does that intersect with socioeconomic status, race and ethnicity, and other social determinants of health? That's a great question. Overall health literacy levels in a county can vary based on educational attainment, which is the strongest predictor, but also poverty status, marital status. And as far as English as the the primary language in a lot of these healthcare settings, the language spoken in the home and the length of residence in the U.S., the final contributing factor is age. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about some of the other takeaways that might have come out of this research? Absolutely. Um, One I'd like to highlight is vaccination. We learned from the research that many more Medicare beneficiaries receive a flu shot in counties with high health literacy than in counties with low health literacy. So this tells us we need to redouble our communications efforts on the vaccine in communities with low health literacy. And what are some of the effects of having limited health literacy? How does it impact individuals and a population as a whole? Yeah, this research showed that in counties with low health literacy, patients had much worse outcomes. In the counties with the best health literacy, the top 20%, we saw 
31% more flu shots, 26% fewer avoidable hospitalizations, 9% fewer hospital readmissions, 18% fewer emergency department visits, and 13% lower costs per Medicare beneficiary. So regarding age, the research also shows that seniors have the lowest health literacy of any age group. Is this surprising? And why does this have an outsized impact on this age group in particular? Right. So on age, it's a good question, which is my way of saying we really don't completely understand the answer. However, there are several age-related changes that could contribute to a decrease in health literacy in older adults. First, age-related decline in cognitive ability could contribute to an older adult's ability to comprehend or recall new topics. Second, physical impairments such as hearing and vision loss may also contribute to a decrease in the ability to process new information. And third, factors such as socioeconomic status and and coping may negatively influence the understanding of of health information. Also, as the, the gap in physical and cognitive ability between younger generations and older adults widens, it can lead to a sense of shame and embarrassment, which reduces effective communication and further complicates health literacy among older adults. Are there any bright spots with this age group? Yes, there is an opportunity given the general acuity of the older population, the number of health events and touch points with the health system, it'll be possible to move the needle so much more with an elderly group that is accessing the healthcare system. So I think there's there's really an opportunity to make a difference there. What can healthcare organizations do to improve health literacy? One of the most rewarding findings of our research is that healthcare organizations are working really hard on it. UHG, for example, is actually doing a lot to address health literacy. We're improving the way we communicate, including the training of consumer-facing professionals. We're testing written communications to ensure they're accurate, clear, and actionable. And we're offering materials and language spoken by our members. These are practices that are occurring across the industry, and, and together we can feel very proud of that. Is United Health Group just plain clear glossary an example of a tool for organizational health literacy? And if so, can you tell me just a little bit about that? Yes, our just plain clear glossary provides simple alternatives to complex health terms. It's online, publicly available, and used by consumers, employers, clinicians, health organizations, and literacy programs. And the glossary is the largest of its kind. It contains more than 20,000 terms in English, Spanish, and Portuguese. Colleagues across United Healthcare and Optum volunteer to contribute to the glossary and have been building it over a number of years. That's great. And do you know what people are usually looking for in Just Plain Clear? Yeah, we, we looked at the top search terms and brace yourself for a shocker here. The top search terms are deductible, copayment, and tier. So the benefit side of the business is, is the driver here. And in case you were wondering, for example, a copayment is defined as a fixed amount you paid for a covered healthcare service. A tier is a coverage level used to show how you and your health plan share costs. So I, I won't argue it's simple, but it, it certainly is simpler. Just Plain Clear also offers alternate medical terms. For example, powered by the glossary and maybe a little common sense, rather than telling a patient to produce a urine specimen, it might avoid confusion for the clinician to simply say, tell the patient, hey, can you go please pee in this cup? Where do you think people in the industry need to be focusing their energies that they maybe aren't right now? 
I think really taking the responsibility as organizations and professionals for communicating clearly and accurately. If we can communicate accurately, then the rest of our efforts are empowered really to improve health outcomes. And can you give me another example of how we can do a better job? Yes. One important part of effective clinician communication is this teach-back method. And, and using the simple technique, the clinician takes on responsibility for clear communication rather than appearing to test the patient's understanding. So when a clinician uses the teach-back method, she checks the clarity of her explanation by asking the patient who just received instructions or advice to share or teach back the information he or she just learned. And the opportunity will be for the medical teams to normalize this approach into their workflow. Can you give me an example of what the teach back method is? Sure. A doctor could say, Callie, we've been talking about a few different things. I've given you instructions. Would you mind saying it back to me so that I know if I was clear? Or I could say, listen, I know when you get home today, your family's going to ask about what happened. What, what are you going to tell your family? That makes a lot of sense. So tell me, what are you seeing that makes you hopeful for the future? Well, a lot of discussion around social determinants of health encourages me to believe that health literacy will continue to be a major focus within healthcare system improvement. Thanks, Lambert. I'm so grateful to have you on. And to wrap us up, I'm going to ask you a series of questions in our lightning round. Did you have any aha moments or any further clarity during the pandemic or as a result of the pandemic? Absolutely. I think the pandemic highlighted a number of vulnerabilities in our health system that were unappreciated. And I really hope this experience gives us as a healthcare system, as a country, the opportunity and the resolve to address some of these vulnerabilities. What's something that you're currently rethinking or reconsidering? I, I think traditional healthcare delivery it it's been in some ways relatively stagnant, but given the rapid update in care delivery through telehealth and other technology-enabled platforms, I, I think we have the opportunity to rethink how we deliver healthcare and should be really open to a wide variety of possibilities. Thank you so much for coming, Lambert, and sharing all the work that you and your team are doing. I really appreciate it. That was a great interview with Lambert, and I love how he talks about the importance of designing care for people. For people working within the system, that often means remembering that not everyone else lives this work and this world in their day-to-day -day lives. So not everyone will have the context or the familiarity with jargon or concepts. It's hard to constantly remember that, which is why tools like Just Plain Clear can be so helpful. And I've actually never used the glossary. So what I'm going to do now is pull it up and try it out. I'm going to www.justplainclear.com. There's a search bar that pops up and I am going to look for epidural. Going back to the example I just gave, if I was working with somebody who was pregnant and in the process of delivery and an epidural was presented as an option, I think what could be great is to say a shot of medication to your spine to reduce pain and inflammation during childbirth is available to you. And that is so much more clear and so much more concise about the process of which someone is actually going to be receiving something. And I think that just speaks to what Lambert is talking about in the interview, which is the importance of designing care for people. And so that's just one of the ways in which I think that this glossary can be really helpful for people. There is an increasing recognition that clinicians and organizations change their mindset and consciously talk to individuals differently than, say, 
their colleagues or other organizations. And I think that makes sense, right? We think about something like the curse of knowledge, which is being so close to something, working in it every day, studying it, being consumed with the topic that you forget to describe it in its most simple and basic terms. And so Again, just having the opportunity to slow down, to have some support through this glossary or other tools like it to make sure that everyone is coming along with us and understanding exactly what is happening is so important, especially when we think about equity. This has been a theme throughout all of our episodes, but I personally think about a lot of the people I support as a birth doula. They might not speak English as a first language. They might be working multiple jobs. They might have different people coming in to different appointments with them that have different experiences with the healthcare system. And so making sure that that healthcare language is very clear is essential to making sure that they have positive experiences with the health system. The other thing I think about is how we improve awareness and educate people outside the doctor's office at a public health level instead of an individual level. Very few people are better equipped to talk about hands-on solutions to the challenge of public health literacy than Dr. Dean Schillinger, health communication scientist and chronic disease prevention and control expert. He's co-founder of the University of California, San Francisco's Center for Vulnerable Populations and founder of You Speaks and the Bigger Picture, using art to improve health literacy to address conditions like type 2 diabetes. Stacey recently had a chance to talk to him and learn about his work. So just to start out, could you just introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your role and why it is that you do what you do? I am Dean Schillinger. I'm a professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and a general internist and primary care doctor at San Francisco General Hospital. I've previously directed the Division of General Medicine at San Francisco General Hospital, and in my public health work, formerly was Chief of Diabetes Prevention and Control for the state of California. And I got into the work related to health literacy primarily through my clinical experiences of working in a public hospital. Just to kick us off, would you mind talking a little bit about personal health literacy and the ability of individuals to find, understand, and use information and services to inform health-related decisions and actions for themselves and others? Sure. So individual health literacy is exactly as you defined, and it really entails a, a number of skills and body of knowledge that um, is required to optimally manage one's health and be able to utilize healthcare uh, when one has access to it. Um, I think that what's important to recognize, of course, is first of all, this is not necessarily a fixed attribute of an individual. Individual's health literacy can increase over time. Obviously, many of us would not be doctors or nurses or health educators if that were not the case. And that an individual's ability to navigate the healthcare system and uh, self-manage their disease is also a function of the health systems in which they are operating in and which clinicians are operating in. So um, when I think of individual health literacy, I think of it both as an attribute of the individual that is dynamic, as well as a function of the demands that we place on individuals as healthcare systems. So I had an opportunity to read the paper that you wrote, and I would love for you to explain a little further about the relationship between social determinants, health literacy, and health disparities, kind of what those intersections are, and, and maybe even touch on the challenges with the research of health literacy. Sure, yeah, this is a very complex 
issue. I would say in brief, there is no question that whether one is black or white, rich or poor, highly educated, poorly educated, rural or urban, that having limited health literacy is an important barrier to achieving optimal health. So limited health literacy is associated with higher incidence of disease, and then once you have the disease, uh, greater difficulties in managing, controlling that disease, and staying out of the emergency room and, and living a longer, healthy life. Whether that limited health literacy explains racial and ethnic or income-related disparities is less clear. Having limited literacy skills, whether it's in health context or other contexts, is really a marker of some form of systemic oppression. And so it's extremely difficult to disentangle health literacy from all those other structural factors that may be causing worse health. Those populations that have limited health literacy are going to be additionally disadvantaged because of the fact that they are differentially exposed by virtue of their socioeconomic position to unhealthy risk factors, exposures, and fewer resources in their communities and lives. So the individual with a limited health literacy has to have the wherewithal to overcome the unhealthy exposures and extract high-quality health care from an under-resourced healthcare system. And so in a sort of vicious cyclical manner, the relationship between social determinants of health and health literacy can lead to worse health, both through suboptimal health care delivery and suboptimal public health conditions. So when we think about solutions, you are very involved and started an organization called Youth Speak and the Bigger Picture. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what problems that it's working to solve? Yes, this um, initiative known as The Bigger Picture is an attempt to focus the conversation, in this case specifically about type 2 diabetes, away from the individual shame and blame game, you know, the, that people are lazy and they eat junk food, to more of the public health literacy discussion of, well, what's going on in these communities and these families and the neighborhoods that make it very difficult for individuals to have the right choice be the easy choice? So it really is about calling out the structural factors in society that are disproportionately leading to higher rates of diabetes and worse outcomes from diabetes among underserved populations. And it's a collaboration between Youth Speaks, which is a youth arts organization that really fosters low-income youth of color finding their voices through spoken word poetry and our uh, Health Communications Center at the Center for Vulnerable Populations at UCSF. And we've come together, we're now on, almost on our 10th year, of creating content generated by young people of color that uh, speaks to their peers and to youth stakeholders, all of us, around the drivers of the type 2 diabetes epidemic, the real drivers based on their lived experience in their own communities. And we've extended it to other health conditions because type 2 diabetes is simply sort of a, an exemplar condition. So we're doing some work in COVID now as well. But what it really has done is to allow those most affected by the diabetes epidemic to raise their voice and change the conversation about what is driving the diabetes epidemic and what we as a society need to do 
to confront and address this epidemic in a cost-effective manner. It cannot just be simply browbeating people to eat right and exercise. There has to be structural change if we expect significant shifts in the public's health. So how does the word get out around this movement? Yeah, so we have a, a range of dissemination vehicles. The most important one, quite frankly, is our school-based programs. We have a very active school-based program in the San Francisco Bay Area where we go to high schools and the young poets perform at assemblies. And these have been shown to be extremely effective in changing hearts and, and minds and activating young people around this hidden epidemic. Obviously, anything involving youth has very active social media engagement. And so there's Instagram and, you know, Facebook, YouTube content. And then not infrequently, we've been fortunate in in getting earned media. Uh, We don't have much of a budget for for dissemination or media. So we're we're very fortunate when press like the New York Times features uh, the work of the young poets as they did in 2018. Or we have a publication in a major medical journal that features their work. We now have about 30 video poems. They're about four minutes each, and you've never seen anything quite like it. It really is amazing work that is going to change the way we all think about health. I can hear the passion in your voice around this, and we are all very fortunate to have you as a driver you know, for change in this world. And it really is truly changing the conversation forever. I can remember it was always about you need to eat better, you need to exercise. And it's a lot bigger than that. It is. And I think, yeah, I think what's, you know, one silver lining with the COVID epidemic, of course, is that people are now realizing and understanding that what drives health is the extent to which you or your family or community is exposed to unhealthy conditions. In the case of COVID, it's obvious. You're like, well, it's a virus. That's the exposure. So those people who are essential workers or those people who live seven to an apartment room, you know, they're going to be disproportionately exposed. And I think it, it's sort of, it's become widely accepted that exposures or protective factors in the case of a vaccine or having a job in which you can work from your laptop at home. These things, the balance between exposures and protective factors are determine whether you're going to get COVID and die from it. As it turns out, that is true for every single health condition in America. Whether we get diabetes, whether we get cancer, whether we get asthma, all of these things to one degree or another, some more than others, are a function of the conditions in which we live, work, and play. And I think if we Americans could begin to understand the power that those exposures and protective factors have in determining our health trajectories and think about our social and health policy accordingly, I think that we would be in a much, much safer and healthier place. It's sort of a a different form of herd immunity to have a robust uh, social system in which those who are food insecure are no longer food insecure. Those who are marginally housed now have a place to live. These, These structural factors are incredibly profound drivers of health or disease. So what can individuals and organizations do? Well, I mean, I think we've been talking about two separate domains of health. One is health care delivery, and the other is public health. And so, you know, what can we do as individuals in the health care realm? There's a multitude of things we can do. Um, And I think most are engaged in health care in one form or another, most of your listeners. And so what we need to do is become 
advocates and champions for system change in the healthcare system. We need to become agents of change in our healthcare organizations to lower the health literacy demands on our patients so that they can optimally extract healthcare as a resource for themselves and for their families. Right now, so much of what we do is out of the reach of the common person, whether it's how we communicate to patients and the complexity of our language to the ways in which it's tremendously difficult for patients to log on to a patient portal and communicate with their provider that way or filling refills at the pharmacy. All of these literacies become absolutely essential to be able to get even basic health care. That just cannot stand. It cannot be sustained. And so we have to become advocates in every point of interaction that we have uh, with our patients in ensuring that the information is understandable, that the information is actionable, and that we have enough supports in place for those who, through the usual methods of communication, are simply not able to get it done or get it done as well as they as they could. So we certainly have a very large role to play in our healthcare organizations at multiple levels. In terms of the public health uh, discussion, I think we all are in an incredibly privileged position as healthcare providers to say, you know what, healthcare is very important and ensuring equitable access and comprehensive care for everyone is absolutely critical. And at the same time, if that's all we invest in as a society, we are like, you know, the boy sticking the finger in, in, in the hole in, in, in the dam. Um, we need to stop the disease flowing uh, in it's flowing as, as waterfalls um, through this dam by shoring up the dam. And we can start simply by the kinds of conversations that we have with our friends, families, and peers. And then ultimately, of course, it's, you know, at the voting booth. Um, our social policies, it turns out, are absolutely essential to the health of this nation. So, for example, um, there is work underfoot now at the USDA to increase the amount, the benefit amount for individuals who receive SNAP benefits, formerly known as food stamps. This may seem like a, not an important issue for health, but this is absolutely going to be life-changing for many people. It may mean that some people will let's take a person with diabetes, will no longer need to be choosing to decide between do I get these high calorie cookies so my, my stomach is full uh, or, or do I buy a fresh fruits and vegetables and maintain control of my diabetes? Or, you know, will I have enough money at the end of the month so I can pay for heat in my apartment or instead of having to pay for food? These are very important social investments that have health consequences. And so the policies that we support as citizens will have direct implications and consequences for the health of our patients. So if you were to look at, you know, the difference between 2019 and today, mm -hmm. 2021, where do you think we've made progress? Yeah, I think it's probably in three areas. Um, the first is, I mean, I'll just speak to my own experience of being a primary care physician in San Francisco during the COVID epidemic. What's been incredibly heartening is that now if I have a patient who's either been exposed to COVID or has a COVID infection, there is broad recognition within the healthcare system that we need to think about how is that person going to get food? Where are they going to live during this quarantine period? What kind of roof are they going to have over 
their head? How are we going to communicate with them over the next two weeks? And so this idea of clinic community linkages has become deeply embedded in the way we think about healthcare. And that is a change that obviously has been afoot for for quite a while, but this has really jump-started the recognition that if we're going to try to address someone's COVID or heart failure or diabetes, we have to also simultaneously address the social and living conditions in which they're trying to manage their illness. So that's one big leap, I think, that we've made in COVID. And the question to, you know, for all of us is whether we can sustain that kind of clinic community connection when, God willing, we, we pass through this uh, pandemic. The second obviously has to do with um, the remarkable degree of innovation and flexibility we've all been able to show around telehealth and how many doors that can open if we're able to sustain the kind of reimbursement models that we've been fortunate to have during COVID. Uh, you can imagine what it's like for a patient of mine who literally has 10 you know, comorbid conditions who's 79 years old and and barely can walk with a walker to have to come to her appointment with me to manage her heart failure, depression, diabetes, arthritis, and PTSD. That's a huge, huge undertaking for her. And many, many people are involved in getting her to that visit. And many times she doesn't make it. So that's a very ineffective form of healthcare. And so to be able to have some of those visits over the course of a year take place through distance technology, it would be a remarkable advance if we can sustain that. Obviously, there are issues related to internet connectivity and digital literacy and, and other other barriers that we need to overcome, particularly when we're talking about limited health literacy, and we need to do that. We need to focus on that issue uh, first and foremost before we all jump up and down at how happy we are that we can do telemedicine now. So, And then the third area, I think, is as we've been discussing in terms of what has changed, is that I think the healthcare community as a whole has really become a very powerful advocate for public health. It's not always been that way, that the healthcare community has been so unified around the recognition that social conditions drive health problems. And so uh, we are a very powerful force in America. We are a trusted entity. And so to the degree that this pandemic and the experience that it has wrought um, can help us as healthcare providers move our nation forward to develop the kind of herd immunity that we need, not only from vaccines, but from more robust social systems, I think that would be another sort of lemonade out of lemons uh, scenario. Is there anything else that you'd like to share on public health and health literacy? Well, um, first of all, I want to thank you for for the opportunity. I think that health literacy is appropriately getting its fair share of the limelight. Um, Whether or not it explains health disparities may be missing the point. Um, If health literacy is important for all people, then it's something that we should be focused on for all people. And so I think that um, I hope that we continue to push forward as individuals and as healthcare organizations to move the health literacy agenda forward in our own behaviors and in our own practices and at the at the C-suite level as well. Um, in terms of public health literacy, I, I just want to reinforce that I think it's become clear to me that our role as clinicians and healthcare managers and providers is not just 
to improve the health literacy of people with respect to managing their disease, but to also advance this socio-ecological model of health, to, to advance uh, people's understanding and appreciation of the degree to which our environments determine our health outcomes. And there's health literacy there too, whether it's the decisions you make when you're at the supermarket or the decisions you make at the voting booth. We in healthcare, I think, have a unique voice and unique perspectives to share. That's a great reminder for all of us. Thank you for that. So we're going to end with a real quick lightning round. And we're going to start with, um, can you think of one person who has really inspired you or had the biggest impact on who you are today? Uh, so first I would say, I have two answers to that. First I would say uh, my father, who is a retired surgeon, uh, an immigrant, who um, I used to follow uh, when I was a teenager, when he was making rounds so I could see what it was like to be a doctor. And he was an immigrant who, while he spoke English fluently, he was rarely grammatically correct and he had a very heavy accent. And so I learned from him how he navigated his own communication barriers. So there were communication barriers related to the social distance between him and his patients and the language barrier and the cultural barriers. And um, he was extremely creative in terms of how he communicated. And I first saw uh, the use of visual aids in health communication as he was trying to convince a father to allow him to operate on his son who had a torsion of the testicle, a twisted, a testicle that was twisted on its own spermatic cord and was at, at risk of having gangrene. And uh, the father was unwilling to submit his son to this curative surgery. And my, it wasn't until my father twisted the bulb of a blood pressure cuff and twisted and twisted and twisted did the father begin to understand what was at stake here. And so all the verbal communication in the world uh, did nothing until this man saw what was going on inside the body of his son. So he, he's always been an inspiration to me. And I think my patients, of course, are are the strongest inspiration. And there's one in particular who passed away prematurely from diabetes. Um, I'll call her Melanie, who, whose um, catastrophic death in the context of consuming sugar-sweetened beverages throughout her life because of her station in life and the kinds of things she was exposed to and her addiction to sugar-sweetened beverages led her to get diabetes and then ultimately die of uh, amputations of her legs and, and gangrene. And she really her experience and my experience doctoring her really have inspired my ongoing work around diabetes prevention, specifically around changing the, the food environment um, that so many of our patients are subject to. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I'd like to say you're, you're interviewing Melanie right now, in a way. Yeah, that's so cool. I love it. Yeah. So finally, did you have any aha moments or any further clarity during the pandemic or as a result of it? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I mean, it's, we've been able to see our patients again in person uh, recently, and um, it may not be an aha moment, but it's more of a, on an emotional level, the ability to continue to have relationships with people based on being in the same room with them uh, and seeing them in their entirety, and for them to be in the same room as me and for them to see me in my entirety, that, that is... As much as we talk about the value of telemedicine, uh, it really has reinforced for me the profound impact of the clinician-patient relationship when, when there is one, right, and when one fosters one. Not just as a means to make better diagnoses and you know, make sure that the patient 
adheres to the treatment, but also as a therapeutic intervention in and of itself. So I think the absence of in-person contact in the COVID pandemic, followed by our return to it, has really driven home for me, both at an emotional and intellectual level, the value of in my case, the doctor-patient relationship, but this is true for, for anyone who has ongoing relationships with, with our patients, and even for those who have single points of interaction. It's invaluable, and we need to figure out how we can capture and, and bottle some of that, that energy that happens in, in real life to other communication platforms as well, and, and know what we're missing when, when we are missing it so we can fill it in somehow. Great. Thank you so much. It has been such an honor and privilege to talk to you today. And I think our listeners are going to feel the same way. So thank you for everything that you do. And thank you for your time. Oh, that's very kind. Thank you, Stacey. It was a pleasure. Wow. There are so many opportunities for everyone to be part of the work required to raise health literacy. I love what Dr. Schillinger is doing with You Speaks and The Bigger Picture primarily because you can't look at health literacy or any other single issue in isolation. They're all pieces of a puzzle. They're all important and they don't stand alone. There are going to be resources in our show notes with links for the Just Plain Clear glossary that I used earlier in this episode, as well as some other health literacy resources that might be helpful to you. I also want to encourage you before I sign off today to advocate for yourselves when you don't understand or you need help. We're working to make the health system better, but in the meantime, you are entitled to understand the care that you're receiving. Do not be afraid to ask questions. Thank you so much for listening and be sure to tune in next time as we continue looking at challenges in the healthcare system. We'll be looking specifically at substance use disorder, the current environment, and new approaches in treatment. That does it for us today. I'm Callie Chamberlain, and this is Until It's Fixed, a healthcare innovation podcast from Optum.